This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars, premium race spec clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to be looking ahead to the German Grand Prix at the Saxon Ring. I have to say, it's quite nice to be back in the show with you boys, but uh, Adam, Dave, Neil, you've been keeping down the fort for the last few weeks and it's been a lot of fun listening into the shows, but uh, Adam, are you going to be able to deal all right with just being a pundit on the show instead of the host? Yeah, welcome back from your extended holiday, Steve. Um, can you just remind us your credentials for the Paddock Pass podcast? I can't remember the last time you were on, in between Superbike, Golf, Malta, Holidays was, and everything else. I was on only a few weeks ago for Superbikes. <laughs> It was recorded a long time ago. We only published it just before the last round, mind. But uh... yeah, I mean, the, uh, it's been it's been actually been really great to listen to the Superbike uh, shows because the Superbike shows have been really, really good. Um, it, I mean, you and Gordo are excellent, and then having Charlie on was uh, Charlie Iscott was fantastic. Well, in a good bit of news, Charlie's going to join us all the way through the rest of the season as well in the Superbike shows. So it'll be the three of us getting everyone up to speed on everything that's happening in World SBK. But uh, Neil, obviously enough for you. You've been as busy as ever, but uh, back-to-backs, a week off, back-to-backs again. I'd say you're looking forward to the summer holidays soon. I would say so, Steve, yeah. I mean, uh, I guess the official line is it's a, it's a terrible shame that Finland isn't going ahead, but um, <laughs> can we sort of admit amongst friends and amongst uh, our, uh, our lovely listeners that actually it's uh, it's quite nice, or it's going to be quite nice to have five weeks off as a summer holiday. Um, I don't think I've met anyone in the paddock yet that has mourned the loss of uh, the finish round any finish people listen sorry about that but um hopefully we will get back to the the kimmy ring sometime next year but yes five weeks summer holiday i mean you can't really beat that it's like we're in the world superbike paddock steve well now i have to say adam thinking i've been on extended holidays all the way through i've had like one week off i've been a couple of junior gp rounds the northwest 200 the tt the superbike rounds you know it has, hasn't been motor gp levels of busyness but you know it hasn't been all golfing yeah it's been mostly golfing. i was going to say but, golf you know, doesn't that's count. the way it's going to be <laughs> obviously enough boys there's a fair bit to get through today because we've had plenty of news in the rider market and uh dave just to to kick it off with you i think obviously the biggest news we had since the last podcast was jack miller confirmed to go to ktm for next season yeah, I mean, it, it's something that we've been expecting for, you know, a few weeks. Um, not really surprising. It's also sort of not really surprising that Jack is out at uh, Ducati. There's too many fast young Italians coming up. Uh, and Jack has been absolutely solid in the uh, factory Ducati. Uh, but I'm not sure that solid is enough at the moment. Um, certainly not for... Uh, Certainly not for factory Ducati. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what he makes of the of, of KTM, how he fits into the KTM. Obviously, he knows the structure quite well. Um, he has raced. I mean, he's managed by Aki Io, who runs the the Moto Two and Moto Three programs. Uh, he raced for them in uh, in Moto Three in his last year in Moto Three before he made up uh, moved up to Moto GP. Uh, so I think he'll fit in quite well. And then it's a question of what happens from uh, from, from there. What happens also, especially what happens with the bike, and how does he get on with the bike? Yeah, because Adam, I was going to ask you that. Obviously, Jack going to KTM, it doesn't really come as a big surprise given his relationship with Aki Ayo, but more importantly, his relationship with Guidotti as well, the team manager. Yeah, there's a lot of relationships there, Steve. I mean, you've got the Red Bull connection, of course. He's been a Red Bull athlete for God knows how long. Um, you know, I think he made a very positive impression at KTM when he first joined, when he finished, you know, just narrowly second in the Moto3 World Championship, I think it was 2014. And, um, you know, they've had a, a kind of a popular opinion of him. Um, we know that KTM is very much led by Pip Byra, who was a very sort of tenacious kind of racer himself, you know, in, uh, when he was back in his Grand Prix career. And, and Byra really kind of, uh, what's the word, affiliates with, with riders that just put absolutely everything on the line. I'm not insinuating that people like uh, Bradley Smith or... Uh, Johan Zarco or you know, even perhaps Miguel Oliveira don't do that, but they do it in a different way. Um, and I think somebody like Brad Binder and Paul Espargo are very transparent with their style. Um, they are very transparent with their their feelings, their personality within the team. And I think Miller is of the same ilk. Um, I believe they are, KTM are attracted to that kind of character. Um, I think 
we probably will all agree that Miller's one of the most popular riders in MotoGP at the moment. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, he seems to have formed, you know, the strongest personality uh, in the grid, you know, when it comes to activities with the fans or, you know, even some of the, the episodes we saw like in the MotoGP Unlimited series, um, you know, he's he's very much like at a forefront, you know, of the MotoGP cast list now, especially now that Rossi is gone. So I think it's... um. You know, in terms of results, that's up for debate. But I think in terms of profile, it's definitely a good move. And like Dave said, you know, his options at Ducati were limited. Do you go back to Pramac or do you try something new? And I think uh, it could be an interesting change of direction for both. Yeah, I think it's quite an exciting change. I'm looking forward to seeing how it goes for him. And I think one of the things that's going to be really good, Neil, is obviously it's going to be Miller and Brad Binder alongside each other. And at the very least, they're two lads that you'd go for a pint with. So that, that's obviously a good sign. Exactly. Yeah, I think we should base more rider signings in MotoGP on whether we would go for a pint with them <laughs> or not. Yeah. Uh, then we might have some more interesting combinations on the grid. Um, but yeah, no, just to kind of echo what uh, what Adam was saying, when you read the quotes in the press release last week that KTM put out, both Guidotti and Pit Barrer mentioned the fact that Jack is one of those guys that just leaves nothing out on the track. Um, every time he's out, he's pushing the, the package to its maximum and they still feel that where the... The package is at currently is uh, is in need of that is in need of that constant uh, just all in effort um, and I guess you could say that they've been a bit frustrated with Miguel Oliveira over the last year. I mean, this time last year we were talking about Oliveira as a possible um, outside shot for the championship after some sterling performances in Catalonia. Then he went and did well in both Germany and Assen, and I think since then he's had just two top eight finishes, and one of those was his win in the rain in Indonesia, so it's really puzzling and difficult to make sense of that. And I think with uh, with Miller, there would promise to be a bit more regularity. Um, I mean, I don't think they're, they're signing necessarily a guy that's going to be fighting for the championship, um, but someone that can bring some stability, regularity, and just, as Adam said, put that maximum kind of effort in that um, you know Miller is known for. I think also it's important that, you know, this is perhaps Oliveira leaving KTM rather than KTM kicking Oliveira out. Because from what I understood, they wanted to give him exactly the same package, but in the Tech 3 setup. And I think now the teams are probably more unified than ever. You have the likes of Esteban Garcia, an extremely capable crew chief, um, now working kind of in a coordination uh, role in terms of development with the RC16. So Oliveira probably would have had exactly the same resources at his disposal just within a different framework and he chose not to take that option which you know he may feel that he's due a change as well after being pretty much in the KTM framework for the better years of his career and has moved out but yeah I do think you know Neil's right that there is a degree of frustration that Oliveira's results can swing so wildly from being a podium contender to you know struggling to get inside the top 10. Um, as we all know, Oliveira is probably one of the most um, articulate and intelligent riders on the grid. So I, I don't think there's anything lacking there. There's no uh, big character flaw that's, that, that means Jack Miller is immediately the better option. Um, you know, he has he has given KTN the most Grand Prix wins for to date. So we're still talking about an extremely competitive rider. Yeah, I think it's also a question of personality because, you know, Miguel really didn't fit into the, the, the atmosphere of, um, uh, of KTM as, you know, like you were saying, Ad, you know, he's, he's not, a, he's not, a, uh, even though he does give his maximum, he's not a sort of Mr. 110% sort of personality. He analyzes and chooses and, and, and is very careful in everything he does. He takes, he's, he's a very, takes a very methodical approach to things. And, um, uh, that to me has always been the difference with, you know, Brad Binder, Polis Bargro. They basically, you know, go out, take the bike, see how far it goes, see where the, you know, find out the hard way, which where, where the limit is, uh, and, and see where you you end up rather than actually trying to understand and take an analytical approach. I'm not sure which is the better development or which is the better for, for development because both can work as long as the engineers can understand the the, the, the feedback they're getting. So it, it's going to be interesting to see having two very similar riders together. Neil, obviously enough, one of the big things as well at KTM is going to be what happens at the Tech 12 seats. They're pretty much, good, as Adam said, the exact same spec of bikes. But both riders look like they're on the way out. Obviously, there's been talk about Paul maybe going back to KTM. What way do you see that, Paul? 
Well, I think a couple of weeks ago it looked like both riders might be on the way out. Um, it sounded when we were back at Mugello that, um, you know, obviously Ralph Fernandez, I don't think that that has been a realistic option for uh, renewal um, through this year, just given his attitude and general um, at, yeah, general impression that he gives that he's not necessarily that happy to be there. Um, Remy Gardner, I think, is a bit of a different case. He's had a tough start to the year as well, like Fernandez, but um, obviously his manager... Um, Paco Sanchez was making some fairly outspoken comments about KTM and how they do business and the numbers they offer their riders and salaries and obviously Pitt Barrer was asked about this by um, Gunther Riesinger of Speedweek and had some pretty uh, tough comments for Paco Sanchez and Paco I think was quite concerned that Remy might be um, you know he, his ride might be uh, at stake because of some of those comments but um, yeah I think Paul looks as though he's, he's going there um, and maybe Remy will will end up staying there as well. So, um, I mean, I think you look at Moto2 this year and how the championship has panned out and you compare it to last year, I think it puts into perspective just the kind of incredible things that both Gardner and Ralph Fernandez did last year in Moto2. And I think to give up on both of them. Now, Fernandez, I completely understand, but I think um, Gardner has had a tough start to time in MotoGP. I think it would be crazy to sort of kick in by the wayside after after just one year even though there were some you know comments from him I guess around the French Grand Prix that time where he did give the impression that he was just sort of fed up with with life and and with, and with how the bike was reacting um but yeah I think it's, it's it would be criminal really to not give him at least another punt and because you know all the KTM guys have been struggling with the exception of Binder um it's not just been the tech three boys you know so um yeah I think all uh Espargaro could uh, be a good fit back there and maybe alongside Gardner. It's a complete mystery to me why Stefan Pira insisted on keeping Raul Fernandez when it was really obvious that, you know, Fernandez didn't want to go there. And it's been really obvious right from the start that he just didn't want to be there. He's never really shown any interest in... Uh, I mean, he, I think he was annoyed at having to go to KTM and as, and as, a, as a result has never really um, gone there with the kind of open mind that you need. You know, he was looking at, uh, at a Yamaha and thinking, you know, this is going to be a good bike to, le- to, to learn to ride. It now looks like I think there's a decent chance that we'll see him in the RNF Aprilia um, uh, seat there. Um, and we'll see how his attitude changes. But I do wonder how, whether Stefan Pira regrets forcing Fernandez's hand, forcing Fernandez uh, to come out. Because it was such a bizarre way to announce it, you know, right in the middle of FP. Four, I think about halfway through all of a sudden uh, because Yamaha had been or uh, Fernandez's manager had been spotted with um, uh, uh, talking to people from Yamaha uh, it, it just uh, yeah it, it it's just really strange the way that, that, that it happened and I do wonder whether they regret it now it's a good question Dave but I think um, apart from there being some contractual chess moves going on there were two reasons one that Fernandez could have come in and had a Fabio Quartararo type of debut season, um, in which KTM would have been, you know, taking obvious profit. But the second reason as well is that nobody else would have had him. Um, if he had come in to say Honda or, well, it wouldn't have been Honda, but if he had come into another manufacturer and then, you know, smashed the field unexpectedly in his debut season, then that also would have been something that KTM would have to deal with. So uh, I, I think that was pretty much the reason. Um, also, you know, KTM did have him on a, a contract situation coming out of Moto2, Moto3, and then into MotoGP, where they could have a rider in the premier class who's had a fantastic and amazing, a record-breaking year, in fact, in Moto2 at a relatively cheap rate. So you'd be foolish not to experiment with that and see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that the fact that he had sort of a, he seems to have held a grudge against it has not helped. But there is an argument for saying, you know, if we've got in the no one else can have him, at least he can't out, outperform somewhere else. Uh, on the other hand, you know, he certainly hasn't outperformed or overperformed at, uh, at Tech 3 either. You know, he's just been almost invisible. Yeah, he's been, he has been poor this year. Um, and uh, I think, you know, even his fiercest uh, fans would, would, you know, struggle to contain that. And injured. That. But he's been injured as well. And you have to remember this time last year, what he was doing in Moto2 was exceptional. I mean, he, what he showed 
has never been seen in Moto2 before. Not even Mark Marquez won as many races as he did in his rookie year. So, you know, by that token, he is very, very special. And even if there is some baggage with regards to attitude or maybe some of the hangers-on in his entourage, uh, you put up with that because he's nearly going to win you a title in his rookie year in Moto2 and probably could do something similar in MotoGP if the bike was up to a certain level. But obviously, hindsight is a wonderful thing. And uh, the fact that Raul has seemed disinterested right the way through this year, I think, um, you know, uh, not even KTM could have foreseen that. But um, then KTM probably couldn't have foreseen them having as many technical issues as they have had this year with the bike and trying to get that up to speed. So that has obviously played a part in Raul being disinterested. It also highlights the risk. You know, it highlights the risk of taking someone from Moto2 because just because you're fast in Moto2 is no guarantee that you will immediately get up to speed for in MotoGP. Um, there's all sorts of challenges which uh, which you face, which can slow you down. So, uh, and I mean, I interviewed uh, Gigi Delinia um, at Barcelona, and one of the things he said was. Uh, you know, one of the advantages of having eight bikes on the grid is you've got eight riders on the grid. So you can put someone, you know, like Fabio Di, Di Gianna Antonio, like Marco Bezzecchi on second rate bike, see how they get on and they can really surprise you. So, for example, Bezzecchi has been outstanding for Bezzecchi because Bezzecchi looked to be a, like a perfectly serviceable Moto2 rider, but he didn't expect it to be sort of outstanding. And he's been very, very good. And again, Digia, you know, Digia got off to... A poorish or a, you know a mediocre start, but in the past few races, he's just been really, really strong. So there's a lot to be said for uh, having more, uh, giving people a chance on a on a MotoGP bike, and a lot to be said against just assuming just because you're fast in Moto2, you're going to be fast in MotoGP. Yeah, I think it's one of those situations as well. They were especially Moto2 riders stepping up just because that class is so competitive. It's almost like you have to look at their. Moto 3 career and their Moto 2 career. And for Bezecchi, obviously, he was really good for one season in Moto 3 and then always a, a solid top five runner. But it's interesting that you mentioned Delinia and all of the riders that Ducati have because they've what three riders inside the top five in the World Championship. None of them in the two positions that actually matter, but you know, they've got that depth. And now the big question mark going forward is when are they going to make their decision? Uh, I, I think it's. Um... I think it's going to be hard. We were expecting the decision already, but uh, the, the other thing is they've got a luxury. They have the luxury of choice. They have the luxury of time. Uh, we know that um, uh, Pekka Banya is going to be in the factory team. We know that Joan Zarco is going to be in the Pramac team. Uh, the open question marks is what happens to Jorge Martin? What happens to um, uh, to Enea Bastianini? They can afford to wait until after the summer break or during the summer break. They can, you know, we, we can see what happens at the Saxon Ring, see what happens at Assen, uh, see how they go there, and then make a decision. Uh, I mean, maybe they wait until Misano. Misano would be a very good time to to do it. You've got Austria, you've got um, uh, you've got Silverstone. Uh, Misano would be their next home race, and a really good time to be announcing that sort of thing. Obviously, enough, Adam. One of the big things that that we've been able to see is that with no Suzuki on the grid, there's obviously going to be some odd men left out. And it's going to be interesting to see where all that falls into place. What's the, the big feeling around the paddock at the moment about that? Uh, I think people are, well, now that Fabio Quattararo signed up, Steve, I think people are waiting to see what Joan Mir does next. Um, you know, he's just, it seems to be a given that he's going to be an HRC rider next year, but um, still no announcements. Uh, the, the Japanese are not the most... Um, advanced when it comes to doing stuff like this and also perhaps even making a big deal of riders where they're still under contract i think european brands tend to be a little bit more uh, what's the word brave or have a bit more bravado about that i mean ktm's announcement when miller was made and done with quite a creative silhouette if you like um so yeah i think you know when when mia you know that that kind of confirmation or he talks about it even if there isn't any kind of official press release or press conference or whatever then things will start to fall into place a little bit more but um it's interesting that you know you were telling us in the group chat that alex rins might potentially be going to superbike because you would assume that rins still in his mid-20s proven grand prix winner even though he is somewhat um unreliable you could say i mean it was only a couple of i mean less than two months ago that neil was writing a column um, you know, in the magazine that Alex Rins was on the edge of a rebirth uh, in terms of being a championship contender in MotoGP. Um, and now that's kind of gone 
into reverse a little bit. I mean, maybe the Suzuki news has hit somebody like Rins much harder than we expected. Maybe he's thinking about it a great deal away from the track. But uh, it's, yeah, I think, you know, those two riders uh, have such such a strong caliber that I think everybody else that is kind of waiting, say the likes of Paulo Spargaro, has to really wait and see where those chips lie before they can find any other spots. Yeah, I would say that I think it would be a crying shame if Rins did end up in Superbikes because he's been really good this year on, on the GP bike. And I think that what we heard at Misano was that he had basically knocked on the door of every manufacturer just to start the conversation, to make sure they're aware that he would go to World SBK. But I think, you know, you'd like to see maybe Rins go to Pretty Obviously, Neil, you've already mentioned that maybe for Raul, Raul Fernandez, that could be an option there. And Fernandez and Rins wouldn't be a bad team to, to have uh, paired together there or now. No, it'd be fantastic. I mean, given the the quality of the Aprilia this year, arguably one of the best bikes on the grid. Um, yeah, I mean, that would be a very, very spicy lineup. You know, Rins, I think, with the right package around him, could be fighting for race wins. Fernandez, we yet to truly see the best of him in MotoGP, but given his pedigree in the lower classes, you have to feel that he is something special. Um, I mean, yeah, if you were Aprilia, I think you would be absolutely mad not to be looking at Alex Rins for that seat. Yeah, I mean, uh, you'd have to be mad, but I think also if I was Yamaha, I would be taking a very, very hard look at Franco Morbidelli, who continues to underperform uh, and thinking, you know, we've got this, there's this rider on the market who is quite clearly outstanding on a, uh, outstanding on an inline four. He has a, I wouldn't say a similar style to Fabio Quattararo, but he has, you know, the, the kind of style which would work on a, or, or which we know that works on a, uh, on a, uh, on an inline four. You would sort of think that he could make a go of the, uh, of the Yamaha. Obviously, Yamaha have the problem. They've only got two bikes. They haven't got any spare ones to put them on. Um, but yeah, I would, if I'm Lynn Jarvis, I'm certainly sort of having a word with his manager to just to see if he's available. I would certainly be also be having a word with Franco Morbidelli. Jarvis told me in, I think Barcelona, uh, they were committed to Franco Morbidelli, but you know there there, there comes a point where the commitment starts to make less and less sense on both sides, uh, and it would be honestly, I think Franco Morbidelli would be outstanding in World Superbikes as well. You know, he he would it would be a chance for a com- you know to completely rejuvenate his career, and on a competitive package, you would just think he would be uh, you know a, a, a real favourite to win. Yeah, you'd have to say that Jarvis might well be keen to see what the options are, but I don't think Yamaka can really be keen to be seen two years in a row to get rid of a rider still under contract as well, though, Dave. And that's probably one of the bigger factors for them. It is a situation, obviously, where now they only have those two bikes. It's going to be interesting to see how they play it out. Obviously enough, though, it's not just the silly season for rider markets. We've also got manufacturer silly season going on as well with you know lots of rumours about who could come into the paddock. So we're going to talk about that in part two. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. Adam, I just uh, mentioned before the ad break that uh, there's a lot of talk, obviously, about new manufacturers coming to, work, to uh, MotoGP for next year. It was Once Suzuki was announced, obviously, Dorna came out saying that there was a lot of interest in taking those slots. But what's the latest on it? Um, it's not so much that there's a latest, Steve, but it's just a kind of a momentum really shifting. Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw maybe another brand in MotoGP, but to see another company... You, you know, you do wonder if anybody's going to take advantage of those grid slots for maybe 2024. I mean, there is still time for the likes of, say, Triumph or BMW. Uh, who knows? Maybe a company like CF Moto in China want to go much bigger, much quicker. Uh, there's, 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 there has to be some kind of grounds there for another company to come into MotoGP. Um, of course, we've seen some talk online, um, Speedweek publishing a story that, you know, BMW were looking to get into MotoGP. And, um, Dave, I know you've been debating it a little bit on Twitter, but you do, 
have to wonder about the motives of the BMW group having to go MotoGP racing. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it, why why suck in uh, why suck in just one championship when you could suck in two? Um, that seems to be the uh, <laughs> that seems to be the motivation. I, I, I BMW get an enormous amount of marketing potential and uh, you know marketing power from uh, the from MotoGP as it is. Uh, they sponsor the M Award, you know, for best qualifier. They get mentioned in every press quali- uh, you know, press uh, qualifying or uh, qualifying press conference. Uh, their logos are splattered all over the series. Uh, their cars are sort of hooning around the track, and anyone who's uh, been to a MotoGP event will have heard the um, squeal of tyres as uh, uh, some X racer decides that they need to find out how just how fast the thing will actually go around the circuit. Uh, so yeah, there's there's already lots of glamour there, and I, I I really don't see the advantage to BMW to coming in because it would be uh, it would need a, a serious commitment, and it would need a serious commitment of engineering resources. And you know, right now you would think. That if they were going to do anything, they'd be doing anything in World Superbikes, and they are absolutely not doing anything in World Superbikes, despite despite having proven race winners on their bikes. Yeah, just one thing about that as well. They've obviously one of the big things in Superbikes is you have to use the bike that you sell on the roads. MotoGP are able to develop something completely unrelated to anything else you do in superbikes we've seen it with honda we've seen it with bmw where you're very limited by any of the the drawbacks that you have from your existing bike it's taken honda three years to figure out a way to make fireblade work bmw obviously trying to figure ways with the m1000 or as well but what i find interesting with bmw is when marcus Stram came in to be their manager a few years ago he's much more motorsport orientated than who they've had as bmw motor ads managers in the past so that's a factor as well, where maybe he looks at it and says, do you know what, actually, we can afford to put in bigger resources into this because BMW is a massive company. The cost for running a MotoGP team, it's not insignificant, but for a company like BMW, it is one of those things that they can do. I thought it was interesting that Adam mentioned Triumph as well because that's obviously one of the things that is going around the paddock as well. Like I heard of that Mizano as well in, in World Superbikes because Triumph are quite keen to be able to do something that's, totally different to anything else they've done. That's where the 765 was a good departure for them from what they'd been building up to that point. And maybe MotoGP is something similar for them, but it is a case of Triumph, a private enterprise, putting all that money in. They don't have the resources behind them that a BMW has, but they do have passionate ownership that might view it, that it's something that's worth doing. I mean, it's pure speculation, of course, but I do wonder if Triumph are really looking at Moto2 and wondering if they're getting full profit from the MotoGP promotion window, um, you know, and maybe that's also what's enticing BMW as well as some good salesmanship from inside Dorna um, as to the potential exposure of MotoGP. I mean, I had a quick look just before we had the, you know, we got on online today and um, BMW Motorrad, which of course is the, the motorcycle division of the company, had their best ever sales year in 2021. Yeah, um, me, sold... me. That 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 was me. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, Dave, you're part of that. With, with a with a pre-reg bike, no doubt as well, Dave. <laughs> so it was actually the previous year you probably helped. Well, Dave, I mean, they they sold apparently nearly well, one hundred and ninety five thousand bikes last year. So one of those is down to you. Um, so there you go, loyal customer. Um, that was up almost fifteen percent on two thousand and twenty, and half of those sales were the Boxer engine. So the, of those found in the GS. Um, the BMW Group, which of course involves sub-brands like Mini, for example, I mean, they sold 2.5 million passenger vehicles um, for a pre-tax profit of 5.2 billion euros. So I don't think, you know, the cost of MotoGP is something they're ultimately scared of. But having said that, you know, um, BMW goes superbike racing with the M1000RR. Um, apparently that bike sold just around 1,000 units. And their sports bike division, um, from what I can gather, the sales are about six to seven k of that hundred ninety five thousand. But maybe what is key um, on the press release that I was reading was that the BMW had double digit growth in Asia, and more than twenty one percent increase in China. Um, they sold, you know, over sort of fifteen thousand bikes in South America, so that's one of the top seven best markets for the company. Um, you know, and KTM is still the biggest brand in Europe. I mean, they sold more than 330,000 units. Uh, so that's quite a bit more than BMW. So maybe they want to try and chip away at some of that pie. And of course, when you see how KTM are proactive with their brand exposure, 
Um, you have Gas Gas, you know, recently acquired. I think it was only two years ago now. I mean, that's already, you know, much bigger than any of us have really seen before from a, a small factory that was based just outside of Girona and doing principally trial motorcycles. I mean, now the Gas Gas name is much bigger and it's everywhere. For 11 years in a row, KTM have had record sales figures. So, you know, I don't think it's beyond the realms of crazy speculation that BMW could think, well, actually, you know, we'll, we'll try our hand at MotoGP. Why not? But having said all of this, right at the end of this press release, um, there's a statement that says, and I quote, the success of the BMW group has always been based on long-term thinking and responsible action. I don't think um, spending millions and millions and millions going MotoGP racing can be classified as responsible action. Yeah, basically putting the bike out in a championship for all of us reprobates to slag off is not really a, I think <laughs> something you would call as responsible. Um, but I guess, you know, just a very obvious point, but, you know, if you look at the, the, the kind of the situation in MotoGP at the moment, it does seem to favor European factories. I mean, we're seeing a high success rate for both Aprilia and Ducati at the moment. Japanese factories seem to be having a bit more difficulty um, just with regards to um, finding the right personnel, with regards to transport, with regards to logistics, and basically linking up what race teams need with the factories, you know, and that's always been a, a bit of a complaint of Japanese factories in the past. And then you look at, you know, someone like Aprilia is doing so well at the moment in MotoGP, and they only came in, uh, I guess, with their full race bike in, what, 2016? You know, so from 2016, the RSGP has gone from like well i guess well it was a, a back marker really wasn't it, when it first came in and that's discounted in 2015 when it was more or less just the the uh the super bike more or less um you know from that time in 2016 to now they've they've become one of the most um advanced and sophisticated packages on the grid most competitive packages on the grid um and that's a very difficult different situation to you know 15 years ago when we had unlimited electronics and uh, a new factory come in, in like for example, Kawasaki, when they did, they had a huge, huge task to try and reel in Honda and Yamaha. Um, now it's not such a big thing. However, you're still looking at uh, at least a decade of, of very, very solid investment to get to where you want to be. And that is a, that's a huge outlay in economically turbulent times, you would say. So, yeah, um, obviously there's there's positives and negatives there but um yeah it's it's interesting yeah i, I agree with you know that i think it's a positive it's going to be a big outlay initially um but then stefan piero sat at the red bull ring in 2015 uh, 16 and said you know thanks to the rules now in motor gp we can come in and have an impact straight away uh, and he wasn't wrong it was only three seasons later that they were challenging for wins and polo spargaro took a first podium finish so i mean that does back up precisely what you're saying um, just one more point on BMW. Uh, I've, I've reached out just to ask for an official comment rather optimistically. Um, it didn't get anything just before we recorded this show, but if we do have a comment, which is even like, uh, yeah, we're thinking about it or no way, or yes, we're going to be in, which I very much doubt they're going to tell some, um, small little podcast, but, uh, you know, if we if we do get a reply, then podcast. I'd yeah. like to add. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> I don't mean to demean our efforts. Um, we'll throw it on our Twitter channel. So, um, if we do get an official response, so um, you know, we'll um, we'll big it up there. Uh, the the trouble. I mean, look, I, I take your point about KTM, but the thing is, the the game has moved on since two thousand and sixteen. What we've seen is that. Um, the emphasis has gone from electronics uh, uh, because we've got the, the the spec electronics, and now what's happened is, and especially the Italian factories, especially Ducati, uh, especially Aprilia as well, who, who followed along, it's moved to aerodynamics and it's moved to these ride height devices, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why the European factories are doing better than the Japanese factories. Japanese f factories tend to take a much slower, more evolutionary approach. They don't like suddenly you know doing trying radical ideas and you know trying radical approaches um what ducati are what they'd be brilliant at is just coming up with completely new ideas saying like okay so we can't control wheelie uh, uh we can't control wheelie with electronics how can we control it this is what we need to do and this will work this might work and this might work and this might work and they throw all these ideas against the wall uh, and it uh, and it takes off but the thing is now especially ducati um 
have this advantage in data. They have all of this data on how ride height devices work, how to make them work best. Uh, they have the aerodynamics data, which is giving them a big advantage. And I think that is going to be make it more difficult for new factories to actually come in and join the series. Yeah, but Dave, if it's down to aerodynamics, is there a better company than arguably BMW in Europe with that kind of data, just from their automotive division? Uh, you'd imagine there's there must be some amazing engineering going on there that would help them in the race field. I mean, let's not forget the TT, of course. I mean, that's another major feather in the cap that the, the bikes are more than capable of doing a job for a particular demand. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, they are clearly, they're clearly capable. I do wonder, uh, I can't make up my mind about the, the crossover between cars and bikes in terms of uh, aerodynamics because we saw, for example, that uh, Aprilia brought in a whole bunch of people from F1, uh, from Ferrari to, uh, to help them, and that's worked. And obviously Ducati have worked with Ferrari as well. So there is clearly a crossover. What it is, is um, uh, that's much more difficult to see. I think that more important than anything else is just to have the resources rather than the experience. So BMW's got massive wind tunnels that are full 100% wind tunnels, which means that for a MotoGP bike, obviously, compared to the size of a car or their touring cars or whatever you want to look at, BMW obviously has the resource to be able to put that in. And that was actually one of the big things that they spent a lot of time working in the Superbike program whenever they brought in the M1000RR because with the winglets, they needed to understand how they'd work. And that's where I think we, we talked a lot in the past a couple of years ago about 3D printing and BMW were big on that to be able to try and use that with their wind tunnel experience. So that was their big advantage. I think that um, far more important than the resources available, the personnel, whatever you want to look at it, is if Aprilia has taught us anything, if Ducati's taught us anything, it's having that one person in charge makes the biggest difference. Ducati, obviously, with Gigi Delaney has been able to build really good bikes. They haven't won a championship, so that's obviously there's a big fault line there. But when you look at Aprilia, since they brought in Revola, it's been a really impressive step-by-step progress because they have a program in place. BMW would need to have that figurehead. And whenever I look at them in World Superbikes, you know, you look at it from the outside and you see BMW factory team, but you see Sean Muir and you see the BMW side and you wonder who's the boss here. And that's where it gets very confusing. If BMW come in, they need someone that can absolutely take charge of it. And, you know, someone like Abrivio, Supo, whoever you want to look at, they need that person to come in and really be that leader. Uh, maybe, perhaps uh, you could even point at Aprilia again in that in that respect, in that um, Aprilia split from Grassini, where you've got two different, uh, uh, you know, it's not a team together with a factory, it's a factory running its own team, and they immediately made another step forward. I think it's a lot more complicated than that, but never mind. And the other thing about Aprilia is that Rivola has taken over the people management side, which Albusiano was just terrible at. Albusiano is a brilliant engineer and is clearly really good at motivating engineers uh, but the, the the whole team management part he never seemed particularly interested in and that that has worked so there's a, a, a bunch of factors there but it's i mean it's interesting we you know we, we're talking about aerodynamics and we're talking about ride height devices and all the rest of it um and how it's making it more difficult to compete but now it's also making the overtaking much more difficult and it's making because of that making world superbikes look like a much more attractive series yeah, I mean, uh, just quickly to summarize on that, uh, Steve, I think you're quite right that we cannot underestimate the company culture. Um, Ducati, of course, obviously didn't have the right chemistry going on for a number of years. Um, with Delinga coming in, he had a, he's had a sizable effect. In KTM, I think you see the importance of the motorsports division, um, not only to the marketing and the general ethos of the company, but the way they get stuff done and get it done quickly. Um, it really depends how things are in BMW and for a company that employs 121,000 people, um, how much is Motorrad and a race development division inside that company able to have any kind of influence and quickly to make an impact in MotoGP. Um, one thing I do like is you have people like Stefan Pira saying, well, we're investing in MotoGP for another five years. Then even before that five-year spell is up, he's saying, right, we're renewing our contract. We're going at it again. So there is a sort of, um, you know, kind of a short midterm commitment to the sport, you know, at least. I mean, I know it's very fragile and Suzuki's example is a, some, a case of somebody um, pulling out unexpectedly. But um, I think if BMW have that sort of belief, like you say, um, helmed by one person or one small group inside the factory, then it could work. 
I think for me, one of the biggest question marks about BMW is that they clearly listened to far too many people. And we saw that in Estoril whenever they turned up with that horrendous looking vomit yellow bike for the, the Sunday races. And it was clearly just where like you had a lot of people in marketing saying, well, let's say for the, for the M Sport division 50th anniversary, we'll go and use this color. And no one clearly was brave enough to tell their manager that looks shit. Do not use that in a million years. And it was the worst looking thing I've ever seen. But maybe if they end up having an actual race team that don't have to listen that much to their marketing manager, they might be all right. But Dave, I do think it's interesting that you mentioned about the comparisons between superbikes and MotoGP because I'm obviously just coming back from Mizano. And when we do our Mizano show with Gordo and Charity, we're going to talk a lot about the atmosphere that we had at Mizano because it was in stark contrast to the atmosphere you've had for Mugello, where it looked like there was very few fans at Mugello. It looked like it was just another round. It wasn't like what we traditionally seen at Mugello in the past. Like I always said, I preferred going to Mizano to Mugello. And a lot of that came down to the fact that traffic management at Mugello was really bad. You had to stay miles away. You know, everything was a bit more difficult at Mugello than at Mizano. So I liked Mizano. Yeah, but I mean, it was a, it was a 15 minute drive in for me uh, uh, to Mugello. And this was on Sunday morning coming in late. Normally that would be like, you know, at least an hour. Uh, it was, you know, breezing straight through. I didn't even get the chance to run anyone over. It was really quite disappointing. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, I mean, yeah, it, it, it was astonishing. And, and I think you're right. And uh, again, one of the things Superbikes does so well is that uh, is that having the riders ride through or like the wall of fans towards Parc Ferme, that looks so, so good. It just, you know, really gives an enormous amount of um, uh, of atmosphere. And it also like brings the fans in and makes it much closer as well. Now, I mean, MotoGP is sort of like trying to separate itself from the fans, but you sort of wonder whether they're doing that in, whether that's going in the right direction. Uh, especially with the racing becoming a little bit more clinical, obviously, like the I mean, the without wanting to, to to get into the Misano races, but you know, the like race one was where it was pretty good. The the Super Bowl race was a cracker. Uh, the the race two was a bit of a war of attrition just because of the the, the track temperature. But it's exactly the kind of race that you would expect it in uh, in MotoGP under similar circumstances. And also, there was still you know plenty of overtaking and. It and it proved that it was possible to overtake him at GP in World Superbikes, beg your pardon. Yeah, race two in Mizano was our worst race of the year, and it was still more exciting than the Catalan round of MotoGP. You know, I, I think that there's a, there's a lot to be said for where Superbikes is right now because we've got good parity amongst the manufacturers. You know, we've got three manufacturers that are all really closely matched. Obviously, at the weekend, Ducati had a big advantage because that's a track that's good for them. Temperatures were where they needed it to be. But the race and all the way through this thing has been fantastic. Even whenever we had Assen, when Johnny and Toprak took each other out, we still had a great battle for the podiums. We've had Honda making big steps forward. We've seen more and more interest in the championship. And like that's been shown for us on the podcast as well. We're getting more listens for our, our superbike shows than we had in previous years. You know, when I've talked to some of the, the TV channels, like talking to Charlie about Eurosport, They've received an awful lot more interest in the championship this year. Their numbers are up. And I think all those things come from the fact that it is just a little bit more accessible to have really good racing. And then we've also got more riders now that people know. Like having someone like Iker Lekwona come across has really helped us because Iker's a really open guy. He's always smiling. He's happy to be there. And he's able to perform really well. So having a rider that you know from MotoGP makes a big difference. And I think when Alvaro moved over... He didn't move the needle the same way that Iker coming now is moving it just because there's already been that increase in the interest in, in the championship. Steve, do you think um, some of the, I mean, I know the competition has obviously been much better and much closer, but do you think some of the resurgence has been down to the fact that Jonathan Ray is just not being so dominant? And, you know, you have a rider like Toprak, who's obviously superbike groomed. He's not been rejected or he's not had tough years in another series like MotoGP. Um, he's not tarnished. He doesn't have any baggage. You know, he's not like, okay, here's the guy who tried to make it through Moto2 and didn't do it. And now he's finally found his place in superbike. He's actually been reared by that paddock. Um, do you think that's that's also having an impact? I think that the big thing is that Johnny isn't winning because when you have someone winning six years in a row, it needs to be a Valentino Rossi, someone that is able to capture the crowd, bring in a big audience. 
Johnny, for whatever reason, isn't that guy. Johnny's a very normal guy. He's a fantastic writer. He'd have plenty of reasons to be disappointed and annoyed with how things have turned out for him not to get a MotoGP chance. But instead, he's actually, he's happier now than ever because he gets the chance to prove himself up against Toprak. And like you said, Toprak being a product of the Superbike paddock makes a big difference for us as well because it shows that we can develop talent as well. Like having Ray Razgadiogu come through our paddock means that you're able to prove that the best riders don't always end up on a MotoGP grid. The other thing about it is is that you've got a there's a much clearer story in World Superbikes than you've got in than you've got in MotoGP. In, I was spoke to one rider manager earlier this year, and he basically said, like, uh, it's too confusing in MotoGP. There's too many winners. There, you know, there's too many riders who could win. Whereas what you've got in in, in World Superbikes is you know three riders going at it, you know, banging bars head to head every single time. There's a clear rivalry. It's you've got a nice easy way of choosing a favorite choosing a winner someone you want to win and so you you're going to get served up every single time so in terms of like sport is all about storytelling uh, and it's a much clearer um easier to follow story in world superbikes and it's much more fun exactly i mean you think of the the best years in superbikes they're always the years and, and to some extent in gps as well it's always when two of the, the best guys in the world at that particular time are, are banging bars and are going at each other, you know, and you just have to look at each of the best championships that Superbikes had. And it's probably been years where there's been a lot of that. And, you know, there seems to be, you know, I mean, Steve, you can probably talk a, a lot more about this than I can, but there does seem to be a bit of an edge in the relationship with Toprak and Ray. I know there's a lot of mutual respect there and stuff like that, but certainly there's been a few flashpoints where they've been not just banging bars, they've been riding into each other and, you know, nearly crashing in the process. Um, and yeah, that's something, I think that's the biggest thing that MotoGP is lacking at the moment. You know, Fabio, Aleish, Banyaya, Martin, they're all really nice, articulate guys. Um, but when you see those after the flag videos where someone from Dorna has got a little camera and they're observing the pre-podium celebrations or the pre-podium buildup, you know, they're all just standing there on chatting to each other and there's no indication of needle or bitterness or anything. They're all just kind of like friends chatting amongst each other. And um, I think we do hope that that might change as the year progresses, but that's something I think where there is an edge in Superbike at the moment. There isn't that in MotoGP and that's certainly something that is in Superbike's favour. Um, I disagree a little bit, Neil, because I don't think, I think needing an edge in a sport I mean, uh, yeah, you could be all tabloid about it and say, yeah, this is going to get more clicks, more attention because so-and-so said this or hit that person or whatever else. Um, but I think it ultimately removes integrity from a championship. Um, you know, what do you want? Do you want the, the clicks and the, and the views and whatever else? Or do you want um, a genuine rivalry that's being fought out that's actually pretty close? Uh, you know, um, I, I just don't think you need riders sort of, you know, slagging each other off it's something that i think demeans the championship and if you think back to okay um uh motor gp's fever pitch which was sapang 2015 yeah, everybody's got in. their yeah, everybody's <laughs> got their shot glass down it now um you know it's it was kind of an unsavory episode and we had people riders being booed on the podium we had this tribalism where you think well this is not kind of a hooligan element that we see in other sports i mean i don't want to get all high and mighty and, and moralistic but um you know, yeah, the QPR bit, fan is in no yeah. position to get high <laughs> right, Let's not mention the football, Steve. It's pre-season. Things haven't gone bad yet. Um, <laughs> and my other point, Dave, is that, I mean, it's interesting to hear someone say that MotoGP is more complicated because for me, one of the reasons I've lost enthusiasm for Superbike over the years is that I found it far too convoluted. Um, you know, you're hearing complaints every other weekend about rev limits, about the handicap that Kawasaki as Iranian world champions had to deal with. And I was thinking to myself, why do I have to study a rule book to learn why this rider's at advantage and that rider's at a disadvantage? Um, you know, the three race format, I didn't like either because I thought, well, which race am I supposed to watch, which has more importance, which has more significance? Um, so I, I find, you know, the, the concept of Superbike at the moment, I mean, I, to, to be honest, I don't even, even know the intricacies of the rules and what they are in 2022. Yeah, but the, the, the point is that the, those discussions have disappeared now because it's, you know, it's the top prank versus Johnny versus Alvaro. You know, it, it, it's literally, you know, who is bad, what's going to happen this weekend? Yeah, uh, is Ray so being hamstrung by rules or not? 
I, not anymore. No, well, who cares? I mean, well, I, do, I would do if I'm if I if, if I'm Johnny Ray, I care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if I'm Jonathan Ray, I'm, I care. But I'm not Jonathan Ray, so I don't care. I'm just sitting there enjoying the uh, <laughs> enjoying the racing. This is what most fans want. And also to go back to Superbike 2015, or let's not go back to Superbike 2015. Let's go back to Phillip Island 2015 and all of the races before then. Fantastic, absolutely fantastic racing, really close, really competitive. There was real rivalry. The press conference in um, uh, uh, Assen after um, um, after Marquez tried to punt uh, Valentina Rossi off and he won the race by cutting across the gravel. That was absolutely fantastic. There was real, there was needle. It wasn't feigned. You can't fake that those kind of rivalries. But those, when those rivalries exist, that's what makes it come alive to people because people want to pick a side. These are, I mean, professional sports is just superheroes. Um, it's just superhero movies uh, with, you know, with a contesting, with a contested element. So people want to pick a side and having rivalries lets you pick a side. And I don't think just to kind of end this point um we should uh we should use hashtag sapang clash as the <laughs> the kind of standard barometer for all rivalries in racing i mean that was one that got very 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 out of hand those were unique circumstances that we hadn't seen before because there was basically the two biggest sportsmen some of the or well two of the biggest sportsmen i guess of their generations coming together and clashing in one uh, kind of epic moment um but you know you think back to all sorts of rivalries down the years and yes there's been dislike and there's been a bit of needle but it hasn't ended in fans you know insulting each other and making silly um cardboard cutouts from the uh, from the 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 grandstand so yeah i think um you know a bit of needle i'm not talking about when i say a bit of needle i'm not talking about 2015 levels i'm talking about just standard rivalry where you can tell these guys maybe don't like each other and there's maybe a few little um barbed comments here and there for us to pick up on and dissect and uh, talk about on this podcast well i think we're going to take an ad break on the pod because i've clearly failed in my duty as the world sbk color commentator to clearly explain the differences in the manufacturers <laughs> and the rules and the regulations so if, if adam doesn't understand that we're going to have to take a break We'll, uh, we'll catch up everyone up on the German Grand Prix when we come back for part three. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. Now, we've actually taken right about a 15-minute break, so I can explain everything to Adam. Um, <laughs> what we came back with after that was that the lads do a much better job of explaining the intricate details of MotoGP over a race weekend Steve, on Patreon.com. Steve, I'm going to cut across you here, and so I'm going to be in the front row of Michael Hill's paddock uh, show. Next time I'm in the Superbike paddock, I'll be there waving my little flag. Thank you for showing me the light. Well, I'll tell you what, the Paddock Show, like David said, is something very unique in Superbikes. Yeah. But I was giving you a plug for uh, what you used to do over the race weekend with our Paddock Notes Show. Patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. You can get fully up to date all the way through a race weekend with all the main details, big storylines each day. So check that out if you want to get the latest news each day of a Grand Prix weekend. So we've got a Grand Prix this weekend, lads. We're, what, 50 minutes into the podcast. We haven't mentioned it. It's uh, the German Grand Prix at Saxonring. Now... Dave, it's a little bit strange. There's some guy that always wins here and he's not around anymore. So why are they even racing? Surely they just cancel this race in a mark of respect for Marquez. <laughs> I, did, I, I know you're only joking, but there is almost... Respect. You should have oh, said that, Steve. Oh, oh, no. A mark of respect. Oh, no. Please, dear God. I'll get anyway. slagged off for making a dad joke if I yeah, said something exactly. like that. Yeah, I'm just outraged that uh, that that Steve. Still- we'll mute Adam. We'll mute Adam now. Actually, just before he gets into his dad jokes, that's a good point, Dad. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. I mean, it's actually outrageous that Steve should um, uh, steal Adam's uh, 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 role as uh, chief dad joke teller. Um, no, I mean it, it is. It is genuinely an interesting point because. Um, 
what value do we put place on this uh, on this race? I mean, the, the the one rider who has won. I mean, I, I think it's it's ten or eleven in a row. I can't remember. He's won every single MotoGP race there. Plus, uh, I think he. I can't remember. I don't think he won a one two five race, but yes, he certainly won, he did. He won about and, yeah. And so two basically, one two five, two Moto two races, and the rest uh, uh, and all the MotoGP races. It's just ridiculous uh, his record around here. So um, we're going to get a completely Marquez free race. And to be honest. I have absolutely no idea who's going to win because this this Alex the, Marquez. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's possible. It is genuinely possible. Anything, uh, anything could happen. The the, the weather is looking. Uh, it's looking a little bit changeable. It's going to be absolutely scorching hot on Saturday. Uh, quite cool on Friday. Scorching hot on Saturday, and then uh, either scorching hot or uh, very changeable with the, the the kind of showers which we often see at Saxon Ring, which you know always messes things up. Um, the Ducati turns now, so maybe that could that could do something. Uh, the, the the Yamaha uh, Suzuki both excellent on corner speeds. Uh, you know the, the Miguel Oliveira on the KTM was uh, was very good. Um, uh, I think last year that that's that. It's really difficult to say to, to even think about who might be who might be good. Fabio Quartararo all day long. I think yeah, I think Fabio's got to be in the mix, but I also think we have to look at uh, Aleish because he qualified on the front row last year at Saxon Ring, and that was their first front row since I think, well, since they come back into the MotoGP class. Um, in well, it was the first four-stroke MotoGP pool, or sorry, front row uh, start. So. Um, yeah, and we know that Aprilia has taken a further step ahead this year. So I think Alessio is definitely going to be in the mix. Fabio was okay here last year. He, yeah, I think he had one of his better rides getting a podium, but he was never really in the mix with the guys up ahead. Um, and then I'm in, really interested to see what KTM can do because they've been, well, I mean, Mugello was decent. Catalonia, not so much. Um, but like last year, they were second and fourth and no one pushed Marquez closer in his MotoGP time at, at the Saxon Ring than Olvera did last year. Um, but uh, can we see them up fighting for the podium? I mean, that's a big ask considering the season that they've had so far. Um, so I think Aleish and, and Fabio are, are your two likely guys. Um, and then it's just a, I think it's a case of seeing whether, you know, Suzuki can be there and whether the Ducatis, I mean, this is probably Ducatis' most difficult track along with Assen on the calendar. But then as Dave said, you know, the bike does turn better than it did this time a, a year ago. So... Um, yeah, lots of unknowns. And it's just going to have to be particularly sharp, you know, because this is the Grand Prix with the most laps. So accounting <laughs> is going to be even more of a bit of a task. But I mean, I love Saxon Ring. It's, it's, it's a generally kind of weird Grand Prix. I mean, it's such an outlier, the track. There's a tremendous amount of history there. And you do have essentially two very different circuits stuck together. Um, it's the shortest, it's the slowest track. Um, the Omega Curve is probably one of the best corners in Grand Prix race, uh, racing for the technical challenge going in and then coming out. Um, the time that the riders can make up. Like Dave said, the weather can really throw a few curveballs over the weekend. Um, just to chuck a cliche in. But uh, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be fantastic. And the fact that you're going to have, you know, a capacity crowd, um, you know, if we did cancel it, Steve, because uh, Mar Marquez wasn't there, I think you'd have a, a high percentage of sort of two angry Saxon fans amongst the 200,000 due to descend on the Grand Prix, um, causing a rampage and missing the Grand Prix for, for another year. In fairness, though, most of them are used to cancellations from the COVID pandemic, so they should be able to deal with <laughs> just fine. So I, I'm not too stressed about that. Um, I think for me, what I'm really interested in this weekend, and Dave, you mentioned Ducati, I'm going to say it best to you, because he's been the ultimate boomer bust rider this year, two non-scores in a row. You wouldn't be the least bit surprised if he hooks it all up now. He's obviously got a lot of similarities in how he rides to Mark, so it's going to be interesting to see how he does this weekend. I know it's very difficult to say Ducati to win a Saxon ring, but you know I'm, I'm quite keen to see how best he does. One of his uh, worst tracks, though. I think he said it's one of the more difficult tracks that he finds. So, yeah, but, you know, as you say, Steve, he's been on a different level this year to, you know, what's gone in the past. And he's on the GP21, which is a very competitive motorcycle still. Um, I'm genuinely intrigued to see whether he, Miller and Banyaya can be uh, can be in the mix because, you know, Miller at one point was in the podium hunt last year. Um, and I think Banyaya had an awful qualifying, awful start to the race, but came through to finish fifth towards the end with some genuine, genuinely impressive late speed. So, you know, uh, maybe it, it, it would be a bit silly to contact the Ducatis. 
It's such a weird track as well because you, the 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 bike spends so much time on the edge of the tire. There's only a couple of places where you really break hard, you know, turn one and then uh, turn twelve, the bottom of the waterfall. Um, but even then, yes, you have to break hard for that first uh, for that first left. Uh, but there's another left coming up the other the other uh, immediately after. So it's one of those sort of double corners which offers you know a real chance to overtake to to counter attack which is at the moment the only way you can really get past riders um, in MotoGP so it's going to be interest, interesting to see but that there's um yeah, there isn't really a bike where you think, yeah, no, that one is definitely going to uh, going to do well. You would also think that the Honda is not going to suit the Honda as well as it has in the past because the Honda used to be just a total front-end bike. It was all about turning. Um, uh, they've taken a lot of that away. They've moved some of the weight to the rear. It doesn't uh, sort of pivot on the front as, as much. Uh, so they're going to have it uh, harder. So, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's just completely open. I'm going to discount Dave. The vegetarian, completely for my final question on today's podcast. <laughs> podcast, Adam Schnitzel or Wurst? Schnitzel, and you can keep your Frankfurt as well. Neil, what about yeah, you? An emphatic Schnitzel for me, absolutely day and night difference over the uh, the German Wurst. So that that's a that that's two terrible puns from Neil in this show. Um, Dave. If you can't eat uh, can't eat the schnitzel, what what can you eat over in Germany? Um, actually, uh, Germany, like a lot of uh, northern European c- countries, is uh, is getting really very good at uh, vegetarian foods. There's lots of good food that you can think. If you like a, a bit of fish, you can have um, uh, Zander, which is a uh, a, a freshwater. Uh, family of the salmon i think but i can't remember that's quite pleasant um uh but uh yes uh, I, the atmosphere though the atmosphere of saxon <laughs> ring is absolutely fantastic i mean uh, how, genuinely... how did you go from a fish to atmosphere uh yeah. but... <laughs> that i'll be honest if i was a vegetarian i'd be looking for some ve- very tenuous links to anything else as well so that's all right Dave. don't worry about that also is schnitzel, think... is schnitzel austrian i thought it was austrian not german that a wiener schnitzel i know a... I, I ate a lot of it whenever i was in dortmund that's yeah. all i know schnitzel just means it just means cut it's just a german um it's just a german word for a for, for a cut so a cut of meat and so uh, a wiener schnitzel is a is a particular kind of um of uh, schnitzel and we we know that you're penchant for wiener schnitzels because i seem to remember being in austria <laughs> one year with you when you ate about Three. You were you were pretty much on a two schnitzel a day <laughs> did, diet. I think you did the same last year as All well. On one day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> does that mean you can go into a barber shop in Germany and ask for a schnitzel? I would not necessarily do that, but I would have to. Um, um, uh, I would have to check my German is. Uh, I mean, I have as uh, anyone watching the video pod can say, can tell. I don't have much use for a barber. Can I just ask, if if, if you go into a, a, a butcher in Germany and you ask for a cut of meat, would you say a schnitzel de Fleisch? Uh, again, it's been sort of 40 years since I last went into a butcher's shop. So um, uh, it, it, it's not something that I needed to, to do. I mean, schnitt is a, a, well, it comes from Schneiden, I think, uh, which is a, a schnitt is a, is a cut. So, but I don't know. Only schnitt, Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I, know, I, don't, I don't know my, Listen, uh, I'd have to look it up. Pulling the podcast back to motorcycles for a moment. You're traveling to a race on your bike for the first yes. time this season. Um, you're using a Tech Air airbag, so I yes. gathered you've been out, and also a 6D helmet. I, I mean, it goes without saying, have a safe trip. I hope you arrive there in good form and not too wet. Um, but, I mean, you know, I don't know. What's your emotion about heading, you know, how long is it, first of all, from your home to the to the Saxon Ring? It's a little bit over, it's about 600, 650 kilometers, something like that. So it's a, it's, it's a basically a full day's ride. Um, I'm, I am looking forward to it. I was a little bit apprehensive about it because it's the first time in two or three years since I've ridden that far just in one day. Cause like tomorrow, t- the, the going and coming back, it's basically just one long motorway slog. And it's very attractive motor, uh, motorway slog because it, it's sort of up and down and through some, uh, very pretty parts of Germany. Uh, but it's still sort of hard work. Um, but yeah, so I went out on the yesterday to try out what it's like riding with an airbag and, and the 6D helmet. And they're both very impressive pieces of, pieces of kit. The 6D helmet in particular is just, just outstanding. Really, 
Uh, I mean, it's a premium helmet, and it feels like an absolute premium helmet. It feels like the best helmet I've ever uh, I've ever worn. So, um, yeah, big fan. Steve, can I can, can we just finish this podcast with a little story of that about Dave in Saxon Ring? Because Neil and I were walking with him towards the parking area um, one afternoon. I, I can't remember if it was a Friday or a Saturday. Uh, he was all done up, ready to get on his bike, and we exchanged pleasantries and said goodbye, safe ride. I think ride, I can see back. where this one's going, by the way. Ash. Yeah. And so we we moved outside the you know the car park and went on our way, only to find out the next morning that Dave had left his front disc lock on his bike, tried to maneuver and toppled over. So never there was there a time, you know, I think in the future we'll have to wait until Dave departs safely before we can leave the parking area because uh, we'd miss a great video opportunity, of course. I managed to do that uh, about three times that week because I also managed to do it in front of the hotel I was staying. In fact, I managed to try to ride <laughs> off, fall over, pick the bike back up again. What happened there? Try to ride off again and fall over again before I realized that I'd got the... Uh, uh, so I've got uh, I've got one of those nice bright uh, brightly coloured little uh, loops to, uh, to to stick on it now. So hopefully I won't forget it. Just think of the cool lean angles you can see on your uh, your data div. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just out of curiosity, did you wait sixty five minutes into this podcast to say that to ask that question? That was that was all that's been on your mind for the last hour, no doubt. No, no, I, I wouldn't be that harsh, Steve. And on a future episode, I'll have to tell you how it was like to ride the Stark electric motocross bike because that was really impressive. But um, I think we've talked long enough now for this episode. Well, the good thing is we've obviously got Neil's long summer break, so we'll be able to dive into a lot of different topics during the course. And that, obviously, enough over the course of the weekend, like I said earlier, Paddock Pass podcast will be offering the Paddock Note Show to all of our Patreon supporters. So check that out at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, obviously drop us a message at Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter uh, or a DM, anything you want. And uh, any feedback you have is always very much appreciated. Any questions as well that arise over the course of the Grand Prix weekend is always quite good for us to, to answer during next week's show. So until then, big thank you to everyone from all of us here on the Paddock Pass Podcast. This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Yeah, non-mark predictions. That's the, the most interesting thing about this race is mark isn't there.